This episode contains content that refers to sexual abuse and rape. Listener discretion is advised. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. His wife, Jezebel, came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. was Jezebel, Queen of Israel, as recorded in 1 Kings 21. And that's what she said. I'm Andy. And I'm Polly. And today we're looking at women in the Bible who are villains. And as I was researching for this episode, it occurred to me that villains are often glorified in popular culture. People like Voldemort, Darth Vader, or the Joker. They're characters that are needed for the tension of a plot. So Andy, do you have a favourite fictional villain? Look, I don't know if it's just today that I'm struggling to think if I have a favourite villain, but I don't think I do. I reckon the closest one that I think I've actually, like, had some sort of affection for mm. is Snape. Yes. And I, I don't... Mind too. I don't know... Like, I don't even know if he could be classified as a, as villain, a villain, do you think? That's, well, that's why I, I had this conversation in my head as well, that he he's kind of an anti-hero. Yeah. Which is not quite a villain, but is a, a very common trope that the anti-hero is kind of glorified. And I yeah. think he kind of falls into that category. Yeah. I mean, you could actually also, you could make the argument that Dumbledore is a villain. Why is that? Because he lies to Harry, like, his whole life, basically. Like, he knows what Harry's fate is and works that out, like, pretty early on. Spoilers, by the way, to Harry Potter. <laughs> but, like, I feel like sufficient time has passed for me to be able to say, absolutely, like, absolutely. what the end of Harry Potter is. But don't you think, like, as in, he's very wise, he's the greatest wizard of his age, but I feel like he does some... Some pretty dodgy Some pretty things. dodgy things. Yeah. But maybe that just means that he's a accurate repre- representation of... A complex person. A complex yeah, person. Yeah. yeah. See, I feel like now that I've tapped into this, this podcast could take an entirely different <laughs> turn and we could just end up talking about Harry Potter. I also did think about Draco Malfoy oh, yeah. in Harry Potter because he's very endearing and yeah. I remember growing up a lot of my friends loved Draco mm. and he's kind of a villain or tries to, you know, go that way at least. Mm. Um, okay, great. Interesting. Um, well, the villains that we're talking about in the Bible today aren't so glamorous. The first woman that came to mind that plays the role of a villain in the Bible is, of course, Eve. Mm. But upon researching Eve, it occurred to me that she probably needs an episode all to herself. There's just so many different interpretations of the 
part that she plays in the Bible, um, was she real, all this kind of stuff. So maybe we'll put that aside. Yeah, we'll shelve that episode. one. Um, so today we'll be chatting about Potiphar's wife, Delilah, Jezebel, and Athaliah, and ending up with Herodias. So many would be familiar with the Old Testament story of Joseph. So he's sold off into slavery and ends up in Egypt. Um, And Genesis 39 tells us that um, when he's actually in Egypt, God made him prosper. So much so that he is in charge of Potiphar's household, who is uh, an official. Um, And verse 6 reads, Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. And then we're told that though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Verse 11 then says, One day Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. Potiphar's wife caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So I'll outline a few perspectives on Potiphar's wife, and then we can chat about what we think. So before getting to the specific character of Potiphar's wife, Alan Acock's article Potiphar's Wife Prelude to a Structural Exegesis makes a number of points about this story, one which I thought I'd highlight, and it's regarding the use of cloth and its relationship with shame in the Bible. He says, For the present situation, it suggests irresistibly the degree to which shame and its counterpart honour for the ancient Hebrews lies on the skin. One's social repute is ritualized by the boundaries of cloth that intercede between human innocence and the gaze of other, including God. Just as Potiphar accepts the rather circumstantial evidence of the tunic as prima facie condemnation of Joseph, so Israel infers mistakenly but understandably that his son is dead to him because of the coat soaked in blood in Genesis 37. Finally, just as the overt fortunes of men rest with their actions, so too should their covet desires correspond to their wardrobe as a mediator between the aim tailored to cultural norms and the artless profusion of skin that displaces those norms. Potiphar's wife takes advantage of this occlusion between appearance and reality. So what exactly does that mean? So basically it's talking about how people in the Bible have used the idea of clothing to cover their shame or to um, trick used in trickery mm-hmm. um, and so that's kind of what she's done she's used this idea of this garment mm-hmm. to prove that Joseph is guilty mm-hmm. uh, and should be shamed as he's naked and she has his cloth um, and that kind of is enough evidence for Potiphar to then decide that he is guilty 
Um, and we kind of see similar things going on, similarly in the trickery that happens with Israel and his son, who believes he is dead. Oh, that's really interesting, because, like, yeah, so... Um, Israel is Joseph's father, yes. um, and he is given uh, his. So he gives his son this beautiful Technicolor coat, which mm-hmm. most people would be familiar with. Um, and when um, his brothers uh, sell him off into slavery, they bring him the mauled coat that's yes. like covered in blood yes. um, to prove that he's like dead. Whereas here, in this kind of like, you know, fast forward to this mm. later chapter in his life, and and the coat is used to prove his, you know, so and so guilt. Yeah. Um, with his attempt to uh, solicit um, Potiphar's wife. That's really interesting. Yeah, so kind of clothing used as evidence for guilt. Or, mm. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's like, if there's much to it, but I just kind of thought it was a really interesting point reading that. I don't know if he's just kind of drawing connections where they're not necessarily drawn, but it seemed significant enough to. to well, it, it's certainly a um, an interesting observation. Yes. Um, at the least. That his clothing is being used on two separate occasions in the same narrative yes. to um, to say things that aren't true. Yes. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. So a common reading of this account is that Potiphar's wife acts as the consistent Old Testament caricature of the foreign temptress. She highlights the struggle of Israel, as in the nation, to remain distinct from foreign nations. Here, Joseph proves his allegiance to God in both refusing to partake in an affair and refusing to engage in relationships with those of other nations. Interesting. In Gary Liebeck's book, Flirting with Potiphar's Wife, he seeks to delve into the morality of Potiphar's wife as influenced by her culture. When he says, what Potiphar's wife was doing was not out of the ordinary in the culture of the Egypt of Joseph's day. Monumental evidence from ancient Egyptian manuscripts give testimony that females, even though married, had the distinguishing characteristics of being licentious and immoral. And the next perspective is quite the opposite to that. Liz Curtis Higgs, in her work Bad Girls of the Bible, retells the story of Potiphar's wife and Joseph and leans heavily on verse 6 in her reading of this character. Verse 6 reads, So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. The fact that Potiphar seems to be an inattentive husband, Higgs says, unquestionably contributed to her wandering eye. Now, this is a really interesting work because Liz Curtis Higgs basically retells the whole narrative. And before she retells the whole narrative, she tells another narrative, which basically talks about um, a woman who's at home and, you know, her husband works a lot and he's not really paying her any attention. So he call- she calls up one of his colleagues and invites him to come over mm-hmm. to sleep with him. And basically that kind of... I guess it would be like a, a trope of this affair um, is brought into this scene with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And suddenly Potiphar's wife is this woman who hasn't been paid attention by her husband. And so, mm. you know, this burly young man comes in and so she decides to, you know, draw him in. Mm. What do you think of that reading? So so Higgs is using kind of like a contemporary narrative. Yes to basically tell the same story yes. but but help us to see it in a different way. Is that yes. kind of what she's doing? Yeah. I think it's really interesting because um, I think it's it's sometimes really helpful to stop and, and particularly if uh, you grew up in church mm. and you've been told stories, um, you know, again and again in the same sort of way, it's good to actually stop and go, like, am I missing... Yeah. Am I missing some things here? Not that I've been lied to or anything mm-hmm. like that, but... Um, 
sometimes the way that we paraphrase the stories is not is often a very two-dimensional way to view it. And I think especially because this story is often told in Sunday school, it's often told to um, it's often told to kids, you yeah. know, the, the story of Joseph. And so, of course, you're not going to be able to find the depth or the complexity yeah, of this kind of almost affair happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is exactly why, you know, Christian development happens over your entire life, yeah, right? Exactly. Like, you know, like you kind of, you go with what you're developmentally able to, to cope with. But... Mm. Um, I find it really interesting that um, the kind of the later interpretation, the one that um, Higgs gives, is, um, you know, and I, I don't know necessarily if this is her conclusion, but, um, you know, even if uh, Potiphar had a, you know, um, if Potiphar was an inattentive husband, mm. does that reduce um, Potiphar's wife's culpability yeah. in what she does. And I, and I think the answer has to be no, mm. um, because she still does the wrong thing regardless yeah. of what she's experiencing. Now it, it does help to paint a bigger picture mm. perhaps, maybe helps to introduce the theme of we haven't actually looked enough at Potiphar himself. And mm. I think that mm. is enormously helpful, mm. um, because you don't want her shouldering the entire blame exactly. if she doesn't necessarily have to, mm. but at the same time, it doesn't remove the blame entirely Mm. um so i think that's probably the first thing to say um with the the first interpretation that was given with her being a foreign temptress yeah i think that's also um so the premise that you know the idea that um israel as a nation was not allowed to marry uh was was commanded not to marry foreign women um because of the um the threat that it faced to uh, the holiness of Israel, that they would lead their husbands astray with um, false idols. Mm. Um, that is certainly true. Yeah. And can be proven multiple times in the Old Testament. Um, the scriptural witness is quite consistent. Mm. And um, we see that played out, you know, we've mentioned uh, Solomon's decline, yeah. um, you know, this wise and rich king, and, you know, his only downfall is that he has a thousand women, basically. Um and so that's that's certainly true, but I don't know, you know, in Genesis thirty seven, mm. I don't know if it's if, if that's a, the role that she plays. Yeah, yeah. like it, it very much would introduce the concept, mm. and like I'm sure that it became you know a central story for Israel uh, as a nation to reflect on mm. the story of Joseph. Um, but I don't know if it's necessarily like from that we can explicitly draw out the commandment. Like I think it, it affirms mm. later revelation, but I don't know if it's necessarily something that we can go. That's definitely the moral of the because story. Because there's so much else happening in this story. Absolutely. And she's almost an inconsequential way for Joseph to then wind up in prison and then have this great success. It's more about kind of God's story and what he's doing in Joseph's life than, yeah. um, than us just zeroing in on this one character and saying that this is the moral of the whole story. Yeah. I also think that um, looking at that more modern interpretation by Higgs, when she kind of parallels it to, you know, a, a wife that's at home and lonely and a husband that's really busy, I also think that that kind of misinterprets the dynamic that's going on with Potiphar's mm. wife and Joseph because his Potiphar's wife, who's in an immense amount of power over Joseph. Yeah. And it's not a lonely housewife here. No, no, it isn't. And she, she, we, we might be able to kind of draw out this idea that she was unhappy with her husband from totally. this, you know, one phrase. But it's not necessarily explicit in the text that that's why she was after him. So I feel like it's a bit of a long bow to draw to say that. Mm. And it basically just makes it sound like, yeah, she's this bottle housewife, um... 
and and it kind of goes against well I mean like it doesn't necessarily have to confirm to Liebeck's no. um <clears throat> interpretation but if he's painting this picture of Egypt being like yeah. the women being um I don't know fast for yeah. a want of a better word um then you know it's not like this is someone who goes spends a whole day cleaning the house and never sees yeah. anyone like it's yeah uh it, it's probably someone who Joseph was her next I don't know, like sport. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think I, I don't mind modern interpretations and I don't mind when we look at biblical texts through a modern lens and think about it. But I think the thing that I uh, struggle with in Higgs's inter- interpretation is that her basis for her opinions um, or her reading of Potiphar's wife doesn't actually hold a lot of you know, she doesn't do a lot of exegesis. She doesn't do a lot of cultural mm. understanding of the time. And so it's hard. It's kind of just a story and not yeah. let's try and understand what the story what is doing. What actually is going on um, just mm. so that she yeah. can kind of be, um, you know, paint Potiphar's wife in this kind of, yeah, nice way. Mm. Mm. Which is definitely, it's helpful for like literary analysis, yeah. but not necessarily for drawing out any type of hard, fast, moral yeah, application. Yeah. yeah, necessarily. So, you know, if you, yeah, if you're looking at it in, you know, say an English class in you know, yeah, year 12 yeah. or whatever, yeah, go for it. But I don't necessarily think that she's got the right uh, understanding of, of who Potiphar's wife was, or it certainly isn't, doesn't seem as obvious to me in the text as it does to her that this is what's going on. Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, I think um, in the recent, like, in the Me Too era, mm. people, uh, like, Christians who... Um, who, you know, want to, want to raise the issue of, um, false accusations. So people being caught up in the false accusations, their go-to is is Potiphar's Mm, wife. Exactly. Um, and you know, like, I think, um, I think there, I think we do have to say that, uh, she makes a false accusation. Like that is something that's just true of the text. Um, but uh, how it relates to what we're currently experiencing mm, mm, mm. in this kind of tidal wave of um, this, this kind of moment of reckoning where people are mm. uh, making accusations of things that have happened to them and um, the issue of believing women becomes, mm. um, you know, so important for us as a culture and as a society to and, and, and as a church mm. to wrestle with. Um, you know, that's not necessarily... Like, you need to be, we need to be really careful about applying this story to... To what we're currently um, facing, yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important, and um, you know, if we're going to use this story and apply it to to the kind of Me Too era and um, the, the issue of accusations and um, sexual behaviour and things like that, I think we need to we need to talk about the whole story. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've always found really interesting um, from thinking on this story is that, um, like, the narrative doesn't doesn't actually mention whether or not Joseph wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Like, so we he... don't know what he thinks. Yeah. Um, like, he very much could have thought that Potiphar's wife was a total babe mm-hmm. and, like, really wanted to have sex with her. And, like, And, you know, probably felt a, a certain amount of pressure because she was essentially his boss's wife, thinking, mm-hmm. you know, she's probably got a... You know, she's powerful. Yeah, so. and definitely. And I think it's also interesting that he knew Joseph, I think from his actions, I, th- I think it's quite clear that he knew that even though she is throwing herself at mm. him effectively, like, you know, the text says every day, yeah. she's, um, that if he went to bed with her, he, um, he, he would be sinning. That yes. would be his yeah. own sin. And, um, 
I think that's interesting for the whole argument of like, uh, what she, what was she wearing? Um, you know, what were the circumstances? And it's like, he knew that regardless of the circumstances, Mm -hmm. like he would have been doing Mm -hmm. the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's actually, I find that a very encouraging, um, part of the text that, uh, there's no kind of like contextual factors that Mm. lessen or mitigate this kind of, truth that men are responsible for their sexual conduct um yeah which is just something that i was thinking about as we were talking absolutely yeah yeah i'm really glad you brought that up because i was hoping to talk about that judges 16 tells the story of samson who serves as the final judge of israel and is known for his great strength so he falls in love with a woman named delilah Delilah is then bribed by the enemy Philistines to uncover the source of Samson's strength. Delilah asks Samson, but he lies to her three times. In verse 15, we're told, Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head. He said, because I have been a Nazarite, dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Delilah tells the Philistines that the source of Samson's strength is in his hair. While Samson is sleeping, she calls for someone to shave his head and his strength leaves him, allowing the Philistines to capture Samson. So there are two main views on Delilah. Some scholars use this story as yet another tale to illustrate the perils of the people of God marrying outsiders. Many in this camp have made comparisons between Delilah and Judas. While Delilah is paid silver to reveal the source of Samson's strength, Judas is paid silver to reveal the whereabouts of Jesus. This is further assisted by parallels drawn between Samson and Jesus, as both had miraculous births involving the presence of angels, both were born to deliver God's people, Samson told a riddle while Jesus spoke in parables, etc, etc. Billy Graham used the story of Samson and Delilah as an example of you reap what you sow. He says, God knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. All of us have sinned and we need the mercy of God. That is why Christ came and shed his blood for our sins. He died on the cross and rose again. God loves us in spite of all our sin and he will forgive us if we come to Come by faith to his son, Jesus Christ, confessing our sin. Cain killed his brother Abel because he was jealous of him. But then he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Samson fell by lust with Delilah and the Philistines put out his eyes. Haman erected gallows to hang Mordecai, only to be hanged by those gallows himself. Whatever a man or woman sows, he or she will reap. That is the law of nature and it is the law of God. What do you think about that interpretation? Um, I don't think it's wrong. Yeah. Like, as in, <clears throat> it's, um, it's pretty true that as you sit and you read the story of Samson and Delilah, you're kind of going, oh, 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 like this is only going to end in tears. Yeah, like, yeah. you, and you know it the whole way through. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess there is a sense that, um, as you read, yeah, you realize that, um, there is no way that this is going to be yeah. good for either of them or for Israel, um, yeah. Yeah, so I think, in a sense, it is kind of a bit of a truism, though. Yeah. Like, 
and, and it's consistent throughout the Bible. And I think that that's, um, you know, for this particular sermon, it was probably useful mm, for, mm. Um, for Graham to, uh, to show that there's consequences to what we do. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's true. Like, you know, you can't, whatever we say about Delilah, you cannot say that Samson was not a bit of a dingus. Of course, yeah. And I mean, he does... I mean, he does lie to her three times and kind of pulls the wool over her eyes and yeah. doesn't want to tell her, but he is conned into telling her in the end. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he didn't really need to. No. Yeah. So no, like, he, he loved her and yeah. we're not told that she loved him in return, but she kind of plays this card of, well, if you really loved me, then you'd tell me, which is just such a funny thing that I feel like is... Oh, it sounds so modern. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. It's like, it's like, where were you last night? Exactly. Like, um, I was, I was out with my friends. Why are you lying to me? If you love me, you would confide in me. Like, that's exactly what it yeah. sounds like, doesn't it? Um, Do you she, have a Tinder profile? Like, why are you lying to me? Yeah, and he goes, he's like this sheepish husband yeah. when he's married to her, but where he's like, all right, fine, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, it's just really funny. But, I mean, she's used... a. Like, what do you think about this uh, comparison between her and Judas? Yeah, like... I mean, is Delilah the Old Testament version of Judas? Like, is she a Judas? As, as we would understand what a Judas to, to mean now. Um, I think the difference is is that Judas was one of the twelve. He yeah. was, like, in Jesus's close, you know, group, in a sanctum, um... He was trusted, right? Mm. And um, he betrayed Jesus. Delilah is an outsider, mm. someone who is, like, she's there because Samson loves her. Yeah. Um, and and not necessarily because, like, I just think that the, the betrayal is a bit asymmetric. Yeah, I think so um, And it's always going to be because Jesus is the son of God yeah. and the saviour of the world. And Samson is a imperfect uh, judge of Israel who whose role mainly is to point to the perfection of Christ yes. and not like they're not on equal you know playing fields and therefore their betrayers in inverted commas are not going to be on equal playing yeah, fields either. Absolutely. Um, but I think the, the comparisons are interesting. I've never made the connection. Yeah, no, you um, So I'm helpful. Uh, you know, I think it's helpful that people have done that for us. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, it's there, but um, how much weight can we put to it? Yeah, I, mean, I guess so. Um, well, this is probably a good point to bring up the other kind of more minority view on Delilah, which is that she was actually unsure of the consequences of cutting Samson's hair and was merely trying to weaken him. What do you think about that? I mean, it's it's hard to believe. I find it hard to believe. I don't know what about... What do you think? Do you think she could have just been this kind of accidental <clears throat> culprit in Samson's undoing? Um... Look, I don't know if it's like, it, I think it's probably a bit too much to say she was just like totally unsure of what was going to happen. Especially because it's the Philistines who want her yeah. to... And she knows, like he's, like Samson is, he is miraculous. Like mm-hmm. he like, what, he like kills a bunch of people with like a donkey's yeah. jaw or yeah. something. Like he just goes and like kills an entire field of people yeah. with like a lamb chop. Like yeah. it's like, obviously he's... Um, a very special person and so I think that whatever she was attempting like you know trying to find the secret of his strength mm. I think she knew she was going to bring about his yeah, downfall um, and, and the fact that she tried so hard I really don't I, I, yeah I, I find it hard to believe that and it even says in the bible that 
his hair begins to grow back. And when I was reading that, I was thinking, well, yeah, of course they're going to kill him because his hair can grow back. Mm. What are they going to do? Shave it every day? Probably not. And just, like, keep him in in captivity? Yeah. No, they're going to kill him. They're going to be like... Man, I just, like, it's such a strange story. Uh, Like, it's... Sometimes I think I forget how strange the Bible is. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm just... I just had that moment where I'm like, hair and, like, killing lots of people with, like, donkey jaws and... Oh, man, it's weird. It's weird. But then at the same time, so relatable because we're like, you know, that sounds like, you know, what Delilah says sounds exactly what, you know, many men and women go through when they don't. And also when there's like a, you know, vicious lack of trust between Between lovers or whatever. Like it's, uh, it's, yeah. (laughs) Do you think, um, I think that it is less of a stretch to say that this does illustrate the perils of marrying a foreign woman. Um, more than the Potiphar's wife story does. Oh yeah, interesting. Why, why do you think because that? Because I think that it's really explicit that she is a foreign temptress who is trying to bring out the annihilation of a judge of Israel. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like being able to kind of couple her in with the group of people that are, you know, these women who are foreign temptresses that distract um, men from the main game of God, I think I'm a little bit more comfortable saying, yeah, okay, she probably is in that yeah. line. Except that she is explicitly, she's explicitly deceitful and um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, like, you know, I think um, the warning for um, for Israel not to marry foreign wives is because I think the descent into idolatry is... Um, is a quiet one. Yes. In the sense that That's everything true. seems fine yeah. and then the next minute there's an Asherah pole in your backyard. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, so <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it kind of, it's like, you know, your love can cloud your judgment yeah. in a yeah. sense. And I think that certainly present. Like mm. Samson's judgment is clouded because... He um, loves this woman. He loves this... Well, I think he was thinking, <laughs> you know, not quite thinking. Um, and... You know, it's it's not like he loved her so much that he trusted her no. because he obviously didn't, he didn't trust her. Like yeah. he didn't trust her, and I think like you can at least re- you can relate or you can at least imagine that ex- that feeling of um, being sexually attracted to somebody, knowing that it's like they're bad news. <laughs> I really shouldn't go there, and then you do, yeah. and then it's bad news. Yeah. So I think. Um, there is also not just a warning about foreign wives here, mm. but I think about marrying poorly. Yeah. Um, and, and lust. And lust. And just what it does to you. And, you know, like if you can't trust your spouse, mm. um, and that's not just a sense of like blind trust, mm. but like actually if they can't prove they're good and mm. um, that you can trust them and, and, you know, commit yourself to them, then don't be with them. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. because otherwise it would just cripple you yeah and yeah there'll be really bad consequences (laughs) okay shall we move to Jezebel oh my favorite there's a lot so in 1 king 16 beginning at verse 29 we're told in the 38th year of Asa king of Judah Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. 
He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to worship her god Baal. This prompts the killing of the prophets of Yahweh and the establishment of temples of Baal throughout Israel. Elijah opposes both Ahab and Jezebel in this time, and the famous sacrifice burning competition scene takes place where the prophets of Baal are unable to provoke their god to burn their sacrifice. Elijah, however, offers a prayer uh, to the Lord and a fire quickly consumes his altar. Elijah is then targeted to be killed along with the other prophets of God. After Ahab is refused any of the inheritance of Naboth the Jezreelite, he comes home to sulk. Frustrated with Ahab's apparent lack of strength in leadership, she begins to make orders in Ahab's name. She organises the assassination of Naboth and begins to be one of the organising elders and nobles. Her ascension to power leads her to be seen by some Christian scholars as a tyrant. The Lord tells Elijah of the impending destruction of Ahab and Jezebel and that dogs will lick up the blood of Ahab. Elijah confronts Ahab. Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, he says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. And Jezebel's fate? For the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Soon after, King Ahab dies in battle after someone draws their bow at random and after being brought to Samaria, dogs indeed feed on his blood. Fast forward to 2 Kings 9 and uh, Jehu is anointed king of Israel and charged with bringing destruction to the house of Ahab. As Jezebel sees Jehu coming, we're told that she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair and looked out of a window. Jehu orders that she be thrown from the window where she is then trampled by horses and consumed by dogs. Now it's probably a good time to briefly mention one more biblical villain who comes quickly after Jezebel, Athaliah, who is widely considered the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, although it should be noticed that some believe she was Ahab's sister. She married King Jeroboam to seal a treaty between Israel and Judah. After the death of Jeroboam, their son Ahaziah became king, but was killed by Jehu as Jezebel was. After Ahaziah dies, we're told in 2 Kings 11, she proceeded to kill the whole royal family, beginning her six-year rule. Although Jezebel has now died in the hands of Jehu, this isn't the last we hear of Jezebel. In Revelation 2, Jesus speaks to John saying, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Jezebel, her name, has lived on in popular culture to refer to those women who are prostitutes, heathens, false prophets, or controlling women. The name has also been used in the sexual abuse of black slaves. As Dr. David Pilgrim, professor of sociology writes, the Jezebel stereotype was used during slavery as a rationalization for sexual relations between white men and black women, especially sexual unions involving slavers and slaves. The Jezebel was depicted as a black woman with an insatiable appetite for sex. Hmm. She was not satisfied with black men. The slavery era Jezebel, it was claimed, desired sexual relations with white men, therefore white men did not have to rape black women. 
Whoa. Yeah. That is intense. It is. But makes total sense. Totally. Yeah. Um, so the majority of literature surrounding Jezebel sees her as the prototypical woman villain of the Bible. She serves as another warning about the marrying of foreign women. The weakness of Ahab and the tyranny of Jezebel is also seen by some as the effects of reversing biblical marriage roles. Where Ahab should have been the king and leader of his family, he lets Jezebel usurp his authority, leading to disastrous consequences. Mm -mm. Of course, (laughs) we can get to that later. (laughs) I'll just shelve my life concern over that. Um, Of course, there has been revisionist literature, which sees Jezebel as misunderstood. Jezebel, the untold story of the Bible's harlot queen by Leslie Hazelton, tells of a Jezebel whose reputation has been destroyed through false claims of debauchery constructed by the history writers of 1 and 2 Kings. She claims that few people today know much about who Jezebel really was, stating, The harlot image has taken over to such a degree that it comes to a surprise to many that she was the princess royal of the most sophisticated civilization of her time, or that her dramatic confrontation with the great Israelite prophet Elijah would have been the pivotal point in the battle between polytheism and monotheism. Hazelton points out the inconsistency of her betrayal, as such actions, when conducted by a king, would be permitted, but when they're done by a woman, they're seen as evil. She says Jezebel was a queen in the 9th century BC, and that meant that she was as proud, arrogant, dictatorial, and ruthless as she needed to be. We need to shift the weight of almost 3,000 years of probrium to see Jezebel whole, not just her pride and even her ruthlessness, but also her intelligence and her vision. She then continues to retell the story of Jezebel through the eyes of Jezebel to be a complex and, at times, empathetic queen. So, Jezebel, what do you want to talk about? (laughs) There is so much there. I think we just need to, like, go back and, like, yeah. I mean, yeah, there is so much there. Like, I think that um, in terms of, you know, how she's remembered in popular culture Mm. um i think there is room to say that there's an inconsistency that like her Mm. um her representation in popular culture as being um anybody who is like a prostitute or he that like it's basically just like any bad woman Woman, like let's let's call her jezebel um and you know like then when you actually look at the story like certainly she is awful she is awful um and evil and um there are like certainly terrible things that she did but it's not like everything like Mm. we need to actually be like what what exactly did she do wrong and um but you know like the way that popular culture constructs um uh kind of stereotypes doesn't necessarily need to be consistent yeah sometimes it's not yeah yeah and i think as well it's interesting because i mean she did some really awful things she killed God's prophets, she, um, yeah, she worshipped Baal, she did, she did a lot of horrible things, but she's also in a line of kings of Israel who similarly did those awful things, and we don't necessarily pick out one of their names and say, mm. you know, any tyrannous man is now this kind of... So, does her, like, her kind of image as a prostitute, does that come from the Revelation quote? I think predominantly yes, and I think... We're told that we're told that Ahab sees prostitutes, and so I think people 
my understanding is that people kind of conflate them and assume yeah, sure. that she was a prostitute. But it's interesting because she also has this royal lineage. So. Right. Okay. Yeah, because I was, I was actually a little bit conf- um, confused about why why so much lands on the sexual side yeah. when she was also, like, a murderous yeah. villain. Like, yeah. why is it why is it the, the kind of the Jezebel spirit yeah. is the promiscuous And she's one. a false prophet and, like, yeah. all these other awful things. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Jesus does make a really big point about that in Revelation, so mm. I, I don't want to deny it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, like, yeah, so I guess we have to see how... The Jezebel motif is being employed. Yes. In Revelation. Yeah. Um, to make a point, um, to the to the church in Thyatira. Yeah. Did you want to say anything more about the Jezebel stereotype used amongst slavery? Like the fetishization mm. of black people and particularly black women is not something that um is like it's not something that's recent. No. no. Um, and this kind of view of black women as sexual deviants in order to placate the guilt of white slave owners yeah. is horrible and is evidence that it's 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 gone on for a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really important point to bring out here in Jezebel, but also in this whole episode, um, which is that uh, this is also very clear evidence that people, uh, and unfortunately also in the church, have used villainous women in the Bible to vilify all yeah, women yeah. or to treat them poorly yeah. um, and to uh, and to not have to feel bad about that because somehow the worst thing about these villainous women mm-hmm. was that they were women. Yeah. And what is true of them must be true of yeah. every woman, yeah. um, which I think is horrific um, and it's, it's quite clear in the issue with black slaves that you know it's bad enough that they treat they were treating them as slaves um bad enough that they were dehumanizing them in that way but then to uh, further dehumanize um the female slaves by um by saying that not only are these people not worth Mm. worthy to be treated well uh the women are um are jezebels are sexual deviants that of course they want to have sex with us like it's just awful so awful it's it's really really bad Mm. um but it's 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 important that we be honest about it and be honest about how the biblical texts and the stories that God has given us, um, you know, are used to legitimize all sorts of things yeah. and have been used to legitimize all sorts of things in history, um, and we just have to be honest about that. Mm. I also mentioned that some people have used this as an example, yet another example of the perils of marrying someone outside of Israel, mm. um, but. It's also been used to talk about, as I mentioned, the reversing of biblical marriage roles and kind of where that leads you. So Ahab, he's supposed to be the king. And we see um, in the quote that we read out at the top of the episode um, that he kind of comes home sulking one day and she kind of goes, you know, pull up your socks, you know, I'll go and get it done. And so basically from then on, she kind of assumes the role of the queen and um, kind of takes the power upon herself. And so people have used this to say, look, this is what happens in marriages when women take the authority from men. Now, it's a really interesting point. And whatever you think about marriage roles yeah. in women and men, I'm unconvinced that, that this is an example that can kind of go towards that. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, look, as personally, like as somebody who is convinced um, that 
uh, men are called to a leadership role in marriage mm-hmm. and women are called to uh, joyful respect and submission to their husbands. This is not that. Yeah. <laughs> this is not that. Yeah. Um, and to use this story I think is insulting. Yeah. Um, and I think it muddies the waters significantly. I don't think it does any favours to people who want to hold to... Oh my, no. Yeah. Like, it actually upsets me because, like, okay, so he is... If you want to paint him as a weak man, yeah. as someone who fails to lead in his marriage, I guess I want to ask, what does leadership of Jezebel look yes. like in his marriage? <laughs> like, what is he attempting to attempting to do? Should he have just disciplined his wife yeah. and expected that she um, joyfully submit to his teaching? She is insane. Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. I don't know what She's you're. Ex- <laughs> I don't know what you're expecting her to do or him to do. Um, I think that the main point, like, like, like to draw that as the conclusion mm-hmm. of this text is just left of field yeah, to me. Yeah. Like I think the point is is that he is um he's probably a little bit of a um a kind of um a pathetic evil genius yeah. in a way and she is the um really strong, really smart evil genius yeah. in this situation who's basically using her husband as a vehicle to maintain her own evil yeah. agenda. Um but I don't, I don't think that that's supposed to be a teaching point. For and it, him. and it, in the first place, wasn't an example of a godly marriage that is trying to, you know, like it's just, it's just not in the same ballpark. Yeah. And I think as well the the other reason that it doesn't kind of add up to me is that recently I've been teaching Esther a lot, and Esther is a queen to King Xerxes, who is similarly a bit of a pushover. Yeah. He only almost exclusively does things because of other people's ideas and yeah which is like he's not alone no. in the bible of like kind of useless kings <laughs> no. like, like, and yeah. and queen esther she takes the she takes up the throne and she makes great commandments and in her powerfulness and king xerxes weakness we actually see the deliverance of the jews yeah and so if you want to kind of draw this long bow of how kings and queens work to be representative of an yeah, Ephesians 5 yeah. like marriage, yeah. then you also have to bring in Esther and say, well, she married someone foreign and she ended up delivering the Jews because of her power and because the king that she married was That's a really powerful. good point. It's like, yeah, so, I mean, you could make the exact same point, right? Yeah, that exactly. uh, that was a contravention of traditional um, marriage norms. But are you, are you gonna, yeah, but yeah. are you going to be the one that was like... And therefore the Israelites should have been destroyed. Like yeah, the Jews exactly. should have been destroyed in exile. Like exactly. it's like, no, you don't want to say that. Exactly. Like, it's, yeah, I don't know. I and think you're it's not just... also going to say, see, this is how powerful women can usurp their husband and it's going to lead to good things. Like yeah. you're not going to make the same point yeah, on yeah. the other side. Yeah. To I think it's like, you know, when people talk about possible applications mm. and then impossible applications, mm. like I think you could probably say it might be a possible one. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, is it probable? Yeah. And I'm going to say, I don't think so. Like, I, yeah. And, um, I think that the, if you read that and you go, yeah, you know what? The problem was their marriage. I think yeah. you're like, you're not right in the head. Really like, missing the point. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, the point is, is that they're evil people who, who, who rebel against God, yeah. um, and who follow their evil desires and schemes in their hearts. Yeah. I don't, I, I just, yeah, I'm a little bit at a loss to kind of make sense. Of this, yeah. Um, but you know what? If you're a listener and you think that it's the other way around, please feel free to send us a message. Yeah. Um, because I'm always happy to change my opinion, but I, I just, yeah, this one it doesn't add up. Yeah, and and I think what what actually frustrates me about it, in my heart of hearts, is that 
God's word is good news to us. Mm. And I believe that his picture of marriage is good news. And um, to use a scare tactic, like if you ignore God's plans and purposes for marriage, um, you will end up like Jezebel yes. and her husband. I think is... Worshipping Baal. Yeah, yeah. It's like... Being fed to the dogs. Yeah, it's like, it's like, whoa. Like, it's... It's a big call to yeah. make. And, but I think as well, it's just like... I think we should be focusing on what is beautiful about that picture and mm. not um, on, um, you know what, if you think anything different, you are Jezebel yeah. and Ahab yeah. and um, you are like the worst person in the Old Testament. And it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> I think we have a better story to tell. Yes, we do. <laughs> so I guess the question is, can Jezebel's reputation be salvaged and should it be? All right, well, two questions. Like, Because I think you're, you're highlighting the, the idea that um, that maybe she was just vilified because she was a woman. Yes. Um, and that really she was just this kind of really smart, tactical woman. And if a man had been in that place, we would mm. just be like, wow, he was really strategic. But instead we're like, wow, she's the worst person ever. Mm. Like, should we kind of reclaim a bit of that? Well, it's interesting because, you know, um, in, a, in our uh, episode that we've just, re- that we've just released, um, we talk about that in the yeah. sense that we're talking about how, how, uh, women who are queens have a really hard time. Yeah, this reminded me a lot of that. Actually, yeah, actually. totally. But um, can it be applied to the situation of Jezebel? Uh, no, <laughs> because like, um, if she was a man, like I mean, the author says basically it's like if Jezebel does it, it's really bad. If yeah. a man does it, it's fine. And it's like, no, no. if a man did it, it's still bad. Yeah. And and that's why it's Ahab and Jezebel yeah. in this situation. Um, nobody is going to be like. If she did it, like, that's, you know, she gets off scot-free. Yeah. That's not how it no. works. And um, whilst I do think there is room to question double standards as it relates mm-hmm. to men and women in a variety of different roles um, and in a variety of different contexts and circumstances, this is, I just don't think, yeah. one of those times you can make that argument. No. Um, because they're both pretty bad. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I... I I kind of want to say it's a good argument, but for another time and another place. Yeah. 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 And I don't necessarily feel the need to every time, you know, Jezebel is used in a negative way, you know, in popular culture when someone's called Jezebel, I don't necessarily want to jump in and be like, wait, Jezebel is actually a bit more of a complex character and you're misidentifying. Like, I understand that it's it's a popularized term that might be a really basic understanding of who Jezebel was and I'm happy for mm. it to like remain that way. I don't need to defend Jezebel and to say her reputation needs to be salvaged mm, by mm. And that's something that I think we should talk about with other people. Yeah. So like other characters in the Bible I think have probably been unfa- unfairly vilified. Is yeah. Jezebel one of them? I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, probably not. Um, we probably haven't even heard half of what she did. Yeah. You know? Do you know what I think has been unfairly vilified though? Makeup. <laughs> Let's just talk about that for a bit. Because, <laughs> yeah, because she... That's a really interesting point. She does herself up. Mm-hmm. She does up her hair. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of my reading, people had said, you know, even to her dying day, she was this vain... I'm a... Yeah. <laughs> Look. She's the only person in the Bible that I think is... We said... We're told that she wears makeup. Yes. Um, and... Uh, I think if you ever follow us on Instagram, you'll see that Polly and I both wear makeup probably most days. Yes. Um, and I don't think that we would consider ourselves in the League of Jezebel. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, and I think that we have to be very careful to not um, conflate things that uh, might seem to be 
vain pursuits um, with, uh, you know, an identifying marker of an evil woman in rebellion against (laughs) God and his people. Like, there's probably a little bit of a distinction to be made there. But it's very interesting because um, Christian history in a lot of different uh, times and places has had really different um, attitudes towards mm. things like makeup mm. and um, for some people it's like expressly forbidden mm. um, you know when you think about passages like in Peter mm. uh, where it's like you know you don't um, braid your hair or yeah. adorn yourselves with pearls and yeah. things like that but you know focus on your inward character and I think we want to say absolutely yeah. um, but it's not merely um, something that you know, the application of that is therefore don't wear makeup. Yeah, the application yeah. of that is get your priorities yeah, straight. Yeah. Because plenty of people who don't wear makeup can have awful characters. Exactly, yeah. So it's like, you know, you can be a plain-faced um, person and still yeah. be awful. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of like, it's a very it's interesting thing to think yeah. of. And I think we probably will in a later episode um, talk more about uh, beauty and the concept yeah. of beauty and... Um, yeah, because I think it's it's something that's worth worthwhile talking mm-hmm. about, um, and something that unfortunately as evangelicals we don't talk, talk about, about very about, much, because yeah. um, uh, we kind of are really busy talking about the sin doctrines yes. and <laughs> not really about anything else. Um, that was a joke, by the way. Uh, but yeah, I I think it's um, it's it's just very interesting. But you know what? If I was about to die, I probably would want to go like I would want to go well. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, like, yeah, sure. Put on a good face. And yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just kind of ironic that her face was eaten. Yes, it is by an unclean animal. Yeah. Like it's just. Pretty... And I guess it does show in her case that you know her character, her outward appearance did not salvage her inward character. A hundred percent. Which is great to know. Yeah. Um, but doesn't necessarily condemn all people who wear makeup. No. <laughs> all right. Let's look at Herodias. Alright, so the last villain that we're looking at is Herodias. Matthew 14 reads as such. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. So Herodias, there's not nearly as much on her as the other biblical villains we've looked at today. Um, But her and her biblical scene lives on in many artworks. Yeah. So the Feast of Herod, as it's come to be known, was made into a bronze relief sculpture by Donatello along with numerous oil and tempura paintings throughout the 14th to 17th centuries. Herodias also features in power of women motifs popularized in medieval and Renaissance times. Here, artworks and literature display the subversion of patriarchal norms as women hold power over men. Works focus on scenes such as Judith beheading Holofernes, Delilah holding the affections of Samson, Jael killing Sisera, 
Bathsheba as the affection of David, along with Salome and her mother Herodias as the instigators of the death of John the Baptist. So I guess the theme that we're seeing throughout these stories is that there are these women in the Bible who have traditionally been seen as villains. They're then reinterpreted as potentially offering examples of misunderstood, powerful women with qualities that modern feminists can look to. Um, so Andy, do you see any merit in, I guess, recasting these women, at least in part, to hold to modern feminist ideas and kind of revising our traditional understandings of them? Well, I guess it depends what um, outcome you're intending to serve, like Mm. what you're hoping to prove by Mm. doing it. So I think, like, the question of, like, is there any merit in it depends on what you're trying to do, I guess. Um, So uh, in terms of, like, to serve an artistic purpose or, you know, I think probably like mm-hmm. I've, I guess it really depends on um, the artist's intention. Um, I think uh, to, to be thought provoking, mm. sure, like controversial, um, you know, it's not exactly like the first time an artwork or a sculpture has ever been. Yeah. It's like subversive. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess, you know, in that sense, probably um, it's, it's got merit. Uh, I think in terms of uh, trying to understand the biblical text, mm. eh, probably not. I mean, in the list that you uh, laid out, you can't actually lump those women together in the sense that not all of them are villains. Yeah. Um, but you can lump them together in the way that um, I guess they have been, which is uh, these, I guess, are powerful women mm. in their own way. Mm. Um, and, you know, they might just be powerful because of the hold that they have over men who... Mm. Are doing the wrong thing mm. um so yeah i guess that there is merit but i guess it also depends on what you're doing i, I think uh, a lot of the um artwork has focused on herodias's daughter salome because she is the one who made the demand yeah. and it's like you have this picture of uh, a mother and a daughter in cahoots to get mm. something done mm. um and what is with i actually just i uh, just noticed this when you read it out um what is it with men Bible making oaths to do things? I know. And then it coming back to bite them in the butt. Like Well, Esther as well. Yeah. What happens with Esther and Xerxes? And um Nebuchadnezzar. Mm. And then he's like, Oh, sorry, I gotta put you in the furnace. And then like, um, that dude in judges and then his own daughter has oh, to yeah. get Yeah, like what is with this? Like oh, so strange. Um, you've got to put um, Herodias and um, Salome together, yes. kind of in this like villainous pair yeah. that are um, kind of using their uh, husband slash uncle, which mm. is gross and incestuous, like um, to to accomplish their plans and get rid of John the Baptist. Mm. Um, it's certainly got a lot of intrigue, yeah. and I, I get why artists have uh, chosen to represent it so much. Yeah, and I think I think the the tricky thing is that when people have gone and revised these stories um, of originally villainous women, they've picked out the fact that these are women in power. And I think that's something that people in the modern era quite like. Hmm. And so they go, yeah, she was in, she was villainous, but she was in power. So let's kind of reclaim her image and say kind of girl power, you go girl and minimize what the Bible says about um, their evilness and Mm. what history has traditionally said about their evilness so that we can affirm that these are women in power and they're subverting the norms. Yeah, and it raises the question of what what does it look like to be an empowered woman? Yeah, 
and like you know i think sometimes people people think that the the most strength you can exert mm. no matter kind of the moral quality of yeah. that strength means that you're empowered and i think that's that's a fundamentally unchristian yeah principle absolutely and so power for power's sake is not especially as christian women what we want you know mm. we want the glory of god and um, to be able to kind of look back and be like, oh, it doesn't really matter that they were evil or it, or they weren't really as evil as we thought they were. Let's hold them up as these great heroes of or heroines of um, women shirking the system and mm. um, therefore we can kind of look to them yeah. for that. Yeah. yeah. So we've looked at quite a few different women um, and uh, we've seen them all portrayed quite negatively in the Bible and there's no shortage of criticism um, that the Bible is misogynistic. It's it's a book that is against women. How do you read stories like this, or how do we read stories like this as um, as a Christian woman and see, I guess, consistent representations of women as evil? Like, what do we mm-hmm. do with that? I think when I hear people talking about the misogynistic bent of the Bible, it seems to be in choosing isolated stories like this. But for me, hearing stories of women as villainous in the Bible, uh, I can think of just as many more men in the Bible mm. who are equally as villainous. Yeah. And I think to pull out the villainous women and say, see, look, the Bible says that women are bad, mm. um, you'd have to really discount all of the men who are similar. Like, as we were talking about Ahab, uh, he's just as bad yeah. um, as Jezebel. And throughout we see this um, generation after generation of these kings who um, lead Israel away from God. And I think that there are motifs of, as we've talked about, um, Israel being like a adulterous wife and things like that. But there are also motifs of, you know, wi- wisdom is characterised as a woman mm. and there are so many positive ways that women are represented in the Bible. Um, thinking about people like Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and these women who had such an in, immense uh, part to play in God's plan. Uh, it seems odd to me that people will pull out examples of women in the Bible who are cast in a poor light and say, see here, the Bible is misogynistic, but yet not look at the many portrayals of men who are just as bad, if not worse, and the many positive portrayals of women as well. Mm. How do you think about it? Well, I think probably two things. I think um, the first thing is that, and it seems like a little bit of a cop-out, but we actually do need to pull apart how um, Christians and other people have interpreted um, these characters in the Bible and the Bible itself and how the Bible actually kind of presents itself. Yes. Um, And that's not to say that, like, you know, I, I think my interpretation is like the the only one like perfect Mm. one but I think God's word is perfect and um I think that like you know just because we've got these stories doesn't mean that that necessarily illustrates God's intent yes so like you know just like we're always talking about like narrative is not normative Mm. kind of these stories that happen is not necessarily prescriptive of what Mm. God thinks or what we ought to do Mm. um that doesn't negate the perfection of his word but just rather introduces the idea that we do need to interpret it correctly um 
and unfortunately, people haven't always interpreted them correctly, right? Yes. And so I think, so for example, the um, the example that we used with um, Jezebel and, and, and African-American slaves, I think is just one example of a really, a really, really bad use of biblical text to justify heinous atrocities. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, then people look at, um, you know, they, they know that that comes from the Bible and therefore they think the Bible is misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Kind of in the same way that when we were talking about The Handmaid's Tale yeah. and you're like, well, that's obviously shows that, you know, women were treated terribly and, and yeah. polygamy was a good thing in the Bible. And it's like, well, no, it's not. No. And, um, and, and, you know, uh, just because it comes from the Bible, that, that kind of terminology or that idea or indeed that character comes from the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible affirms it. I think the second thing is that um, the fact that there are bad girls, mm. <laughs> there are evil women in the Bible, is I think is a, is for me reassuring that the Bible is not misogynistic. Yeah, right. So I think um, if the women were only perfect little saints who mm. um, never did anything wrong, and um, you know, they were these kind of two dimensional, shallow. Mm non-human people I think I would have serious questions Mm. um but the thing is is that the bible is a book that doesn't shy away from um the worst things that human nature can produce and it's just a reality that 50% of that is going to be female stuff like and you know men are going to have their fair share of problems too Mm. um and evil behavior Mm. and so I think um it's actually it's actually reassuring to me that the bible is not this paternalistic um, book that only upholds women as delicate little flowers yeah. that never do anything wrong and must be protected because yeah. that doesn't, to me, affirm who I am and mm. my dignity and my strength. And um, yeah, I, I actually think that uh, it's 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 actually something that to me commends the mm. um, the authenticity of, of scripture. Yeah. Did you have any final takeaways or points that you wanted to make? I think the last thing that I'd like to say is that look, we've done this. Um, we've done this episode on villains of the Bible, um, and it's fair to say that all of these women are legit bad. Yeah. All of these women are legit bad, and um, I think it's 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 probably uh, it's probably worth you know as we've been talking, I've realised it's probably worth us having a look at all of the women who who have been really good but society has called bad mm. in the Bible. Um, and I guess I'm I'm thinking about people who have done – women who, you know, society has shook their finger at and said, you're a villain, mm. um, you're a bad girl, uh, and who actually are not. Mm. Um, and I think that that's um, – I think it's, it's equally as reassuring that the Bible is um, is full of those women too. Yeah. Um, and – uh, we have to, I guess, pay attention to that to see kind of the rich picture um, that throughout history um, the Bible has been painting for us, um, which is that, yeah, we have these women who are villains um, in a true sense, and then we have uh, these other women who um, aren't but people who people have persecuted as such mm. um, and have used the kind of villain label to hold them down, but... Um, has worked, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and just as Easter has gone past, I think, um, you know, I think of people like Mary Magdalene mm. and, um, you know, people who who have been painted in this in in a in an unfair light, mm. but have really actually been faithful mm. um, and honourable women. Mm. Yeah. Any other final 
takeaways? Yeah, I think just on that point, like we've talked about commending the strength of women who are potentially evil because we like the idea of women in power. But I think um, through reading about that, I also saw the lowering of women who have been good and faithful and maybe not powerful and maybe quieter people like mm. Ruth and um yeah kind of just you know. this like um this very unspectacular yes. courage and, and bravery and um yeah honorable and, and Hannah and you know I just heard or I just saw those names being cast out as you know these are weak women Mm. And so we need to cast them aside. We need to look to the real powerful women. Yeah, here, or even just not, or even another um, foreign woman, so a non-Israelite, Rahab. Yeah, like yeah. you know, she sees the army of Israel coming, and she fears God. Mm. You know, even though everyone's like Jericho's walls are gonna hold, yeah. and you know, she hides spies, and mm. like you know how brave and exactly. um, you know, even though she was someone who probably wasn't very powerful, mm. um, but is, you know, a, you know, if, if all these other women are typical of one, you know, um, the evil of foreign women, mm. I guess Rahab is that picture of that, um, you know, the faithfulness of, um, foreign women who turn to God, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the same way that Ruth is, yeah. um, you know, and others. Yeah. And so I think we do, we need not suppress those good, quiet, faithful servants mm. because they, aren't perceived as powerful and strong mm. in order to gain anything from the strong and powerful mm. or or I guess even just re- them. just reframing what power and strength exactly. is yeah, yeah because I think that they're actually the strong ones yeah exactly yeah Well, that's it for this episode of What She Said. Follow us on Instagram at podcastwhatshesaid. Visit our website at podcastwhatshesaid.com. And if you'd like to contact us, you can do so at podcastwhatshesaid at gmail.com. It's our hope that in listening to this episode and to our podcast, that you'll be encouraged by her, empathetic towards her and us.